Welcome back to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer Platon. Platon has worked with clients such as Time Magazine, Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, and GQ, to name a few. Platon has photographed world leaders such as Barack Obama, Vladimir Putin, Bill Clinton, and Hugo Chavez, to name a few. Beyond photographing world leaders, Platon has used his camera to document sexual violence survivors in the Congo, U.S. civil rights activists, as well as the unjust U.S. immigration laws and the families torn apart by them. Platon is someone who has photographed the biggest celebrities, athletes, and musicians in the world, but has also spent much of his career documenting important humanitarian issues around the world, so I was excited to get a chance to speak with him about his photographic journey and his approach to photography. I hope you enjoy, and thanks so much for listening. All right, well, uh, Platon, uh, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you. I've um, been following your work for years. Um, I went to RIT, and you came and spoke there um, to one of our classes when I was there. Um, so really excited to have you on. Um, but I guess I was kind of start off, I was kind of curious, like obviously the last three months been kind of a lot going on in the world. I was kind of curious, uh, kind of where your mind frame is at right now as a photographer, just as a human being with everything with COVID, as well as all the protests. Um, what's kind of been on your mind the last three months with everything going on, I guess? Wow. Well, we're living in extraordinary times and, you know, I'm very lucky. I've spent my life photographing, meeting, talking to people who have navigated crises before in their lives. Uh, some people are very powerful and have been uh, in, have had huge responsibility on their shoulders. Some of those people have made right choices and some of those people have made the wrong choices and done a lot of damage. Uh, but all of them have been honest with me and, you know, for me, a photo shoot, it's not really about photography at all. It's about um, getting the chance to spend time with someone and, and interact and actually learn. If they are fascinating people, you'd be an absolute idiot to focus just on the mechanics of a picture and not actually learn anything. Yep. My yep. photographs are just evidence of the connection that I had with someone mm -hmm. and hopefully evidence that they showed me something about themselves that's authentic. So I've, you know, I've, and on the other side of power, I've had the great privilege to be around people who have been robbed of power who have been living in a crisis that's even more intense than everything that we're experiencing right now. Yeah. So, um, you know, I photograph people who have been tortured and imprisoned for 20 years because they sung a song about freedom in Myanmar or yeah. I photograph members of families who have had a member of their family killed in the Arab spring. Um, and we won't even get into the Congo uh, yeah. with sexual violence. So I've seen the front line of crisis, not this crisis, but different crises. Mm -hmm. And it's given me a, a great sense of perspective. The first thing is that I'm aware how lucky I am. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever challenges I'm going through, it's nothing compared with what other people are going through right now. Mm. So uh, I, uh, I'm very lucky. 
it, it taught me not to be uh, selfish and, and think, why me? Mm. The real answer is, why not me? What's so special about me? Yeah. Bad things happen to good people all the time. And once we've got over the idea of fairness with this crisis, uh, because it's nothing to do with fairness, mm-hmm. um, then it, it releases you and you can somehow think differently about what's going on and think more about how can you be useful um, to others who are actually struggling more than you. Yeah. And I think a crisis teaches us that that's where we have to put our energies, not just in survival of ourselves, but there's always going to be people who are worse off. And actually those people are looking at us and saying, can, can you help? Hmm. And if I can help, I'll try to help. If I can't help, you know, uh, I'll, I'll find another way to try to be useful. I'm only a photographer. I'm only a messenger. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't actually hold any economic or political power myself. So uh, I'm just an ordinary citizen. But uh, with messaging and uh, with storytelling, you can help people understand data mm-hmm. and the, t- the confusion of the crisis that we're all navigating now. And uh, if I can be just a tiny bit useful during that period, then I'll, I'll do my best. Do you feel like that's kind of the gift of photography? I feel like uh, being most of your work is primarily portraiture. You do other stuff as well, but do you feel like that's kind of what you take away? Obviously you have these beautiful photographs, but like you said, from being able to interact with all these different people, it's allowed you kind of have a perspective from so many different types of people. Is that kind of like when you look at photography, uh, what is it? Do you think you enjoy about it? Cause I know for myself more than anything, it's this perspective. Cause like, I can't think of any other job like it where you're constantly on a day-to-day basis, like looking at your work, like you could be, it's incredible. Like I think you probably photograph more world world leaders than any photographer and, and not even just that, like all the other stuff you do with civil rights and the sexual violence in the Congo. And it's like, is that kind of what you take away from photography is this having that perspective of being able to interact with so many different people? You know, the most important thing is how we conduct ourselves through our life. And I think that's even navig- that's even maximized and heightened in a time of crisis. Yeah. And I think we often put people on a pedestal in our society. I mean, you know, I, I grew up as a photographer. Um, I have to confess at the beginning, uh, feeling that if I can somehow photograph people who have power and influence in society, then I might get the 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 power disease if you hang out with powerful people you acquire it right um david bailey always referred to it as celebrity disease if you hang out with celebrities eventually you become one Um, but i was fundamentally wrong you know i was fundamentally wrong about that and i now put that down to naivety and i put that down to immaturity Mm -hmm. because what i have realized if i take away the biggest message that I personally have uh, learnt is that the people who we do put on a pedestal are not superhuman. Uh, They're even more ordinary than we are. Yeah. Uh, Now, the people in terms of a celebrity platform, 
and powerful platform, you know, many of them who I have met and interacted with in an authentic, honest way, um, they often reveal to me that they are trapped in this thing that either they created or was created around them. Yeah. And it becomes very difficult to suddenly be authentic when you are, uh, when this idea is projected onto you that you are somehow superhuman. Yeah. Martin Luther King always talked about beware of the illusion of supremacy. And uh, that can be applied to lots of different types of facets within our society. But I mean, even if you take that and apply it to the famous and the powerful, you know, they're not superhuman. Uh, the one of my friends uh, is uh, this guy called Dr. McQuaige, who uh, I made my first film about him. He's the doctor that uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize last the year before last um, for fighting for uh, women's rights in the Congo. He he heals women who are survivors of sexual violence. Now he won the Nobel Peace Prize, so we look at him as this icon of relentless energy to fight for people's rights. We think of resilience in him. We think of compassion and constant courage. But, you know, he's a man. He's an ordinary person who is exhausted with fighting an endless war. Yeah. Uh, the war against corruption, the war against violence, the war against greed. Um, and, and he's exhausted. And, you know, in... He's not superhuman. He, he's not like Superman. Yeah. And we, we think he is, but he's not. And the fact that he's not makes him even more extraordinary to me because he does these extraordinary things with ordinary uh, skills and ordinary strength. But he cares in an extraordinary way. He's doing the work. He's doing the work and he won't let it go. And he keeps doing it because he says... You know, my happiness is the happiness of others. Yeah. Now, if your fuel in life is to please people, and in, in many cases to serve people, then you have endless fuel, mm -hmm. right? If that is your fuel. If your fuel is fame and money and power, well, that runs out pretty quick. And we've seen in power how everyone at the top eventually falls. Mm -hmm. Every president eventually steps down either in a cloud of, you know, celebration or a cloud of, you know, humiliation and corruption. Either way, it comes to an end. Yeah. And our lives come to an end, mm. you know. And so all you can say is, what was my fuel? What was my motivation? And um, I can tell anyone who is tuning in today that because of the people I've met and the things they've told me, to, to be driven by the idea of service, oh, that's the secret ingredient to being a great leader. And I, and I noticed it in your work because I've been following your work for probably like 15 years now. And like you said, when you started your career, you know, everyone, everyone wants to shoot the movie star and the famous people. Yeah. But then even looking at your work now, everything you're doing with the, the people's portfolio, it's not about celebrity. It's not about... Uh, some famous person or whatever it's about like real issues like sexual violence the congo malaria civil rights stuff like what is it that motivate you motivate you at the beginning of your career and has that changed to now like what's kind of driving what's kind of driving your work now you think 
you know, one of my uh, mentors um, is uh, Professor Klaus Schwab. You may not know him, but you'll know his authority in the world. Uh, he started the World Economic Forum, and he is, uh, which essentially it's it's sort of most important annual meeting each year is Davos. Yep. Um, so you, I think he's one of the most connected people in the world. Mm -hmm. right? He has lunches with presidents five years before they become president. You know, I mean, you have to go through Klaus to become an authority in the world. So, uh, but you know, he's, uh, he's an incredible intellect and, um, he, he teaches me about diplomacy and, and the importance of bringing people together. You know, Davos is not, uh, it's not what people think on the outside that it's an elitist group of people. And I'm sure that is there too. Mm -hmm. But when, when I go, that's not what I'm there to do. The, the people I engage with there are leaders of the NGO community, the human rights community, and uh, uh, leaders, uh, cultural leaders as well. And there's a whole community of people that are trying to be, uh, become bridge builders to help people cross over and break down the tribalism that we're experiencing in the world. So, you know, it's like any organization or any situation, any crisis, is the glass half full or is it half empty? Are yeah. you an optimist or are you a pessimist? Uh, it's easy to be a pessimist because we, it's so easy to just criticize everything mm -hmm. and look at the downside and I'm not denying it's there. But I'm very proud to be on the other side where, well, we recognize the challenges but the question is, what are you going to do to make it better? Yep. And uh, I'm only a photographer, as I say, so I, I'm not an intellectual. That's obvious. But I'm that's really, not true. That's not true. For that. <laughs> that true. I'm always the dumbest person in the room. But I see things that the intellectuals often don't see. Yeah. Right. I see the humanity in people. That's that's an intuitive language. That's a totally different space that I operate in. Yep. And sometimes that human uh, condition is what drives history more than anything. It's not just the data. It's the person behind the data that really counts, whether it's the person at the top of the power pyramid, you look at their mindset like Trump or Putin or Obama, or the people at the other end of the scale in the front line of the battle for human rights and civil rights, we're seeing it on the streets right now with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Um, and what is that mindset? Why are people this angry and frustrated? Um, and how does that movement uh, drive positive change? Mm. And how can we harness this extraordinary energy that's on the streets right now and this awareness of social issues that I have to be honest, the power system was not really listening for a long, long time. No. And these issues have been around a long time. You know, uh, I've been talking about poverty in America for a long time. And I have to confess a lot of the magazines I had, I used to work for. No one was ever interested in covering these issues. No, I would go to them and I, you know, in the old days I was a photographer that was dependent on the magazine. That's how I, so I couldn't, get access to people unless I went through the filter of the magazine editorial decision-making process. Mm -hmm. And um, 
obviously at the beginning that was great for me because that's how I got access to the influences of our time. But it, as time went on, I become I became more and more aware that hold on a minute, there's a whole thing going on here that we are not dealing with. And I would like to try and understand it and document it. And, you know, they divide in the media, they divide photojournalism with portraiture up. They don't really like us mixing. Mm -hmm. This idea of photojournalism where you don't get involved with your subject, you're this neutral, uh, objective viewpoint. And then the portraiture, which is opposite it's completely subjective you it's a dialogue it's an exchange between you and the sitter and it's very very intimate for that reason right and um you know i was always interested in why why are we creating these divisions even within photography an artist is free an artist does what's in their heart and so um you know as time went on i started to feel as a portrait photographer you know I am not being allowed to document the times in the way that I think the times need to be documented. Yeah. I often regard it as a kind of trying to cure society's amnesia in a very close up way. Yeah. Media. I mean, media is weird now because everything, I mean, I don't know if it's when the internet came aboard or what cable news, everything's like, it's all like clickbait. They want you to, it, it's just, they want uh, drama. They want, uh, conflict and it's like these media outlets have they have the power they have the audience to do amazing stuff but sometimes it's all this clickbait so it's just it's interesting to see well, how they, you know they, they the, the danger the danger is when you mix money with news yep it's the same danger as when you mix money with health mm -hmm. you know i mean if you go to a doctor and you say i've got a pain here uh you know is the doctor gonna really help that pain or the cause of that pain or is the doctor just trying to sell you stuff yeah. and take advantage of your vulnerability and it's the same i feel about news information there was a woman i photographed in russia uh who's an elderly lady and she had trained um i can't remember her name now she was an amazing woman she had essentially trained a generation of journalists uh, operating underneath the Russian power regime. Yeah. And um, she said to me, you have to be very careful as a journalist not to become a social activist. You have to choose what you are. If you're a journalist, you tell the, the, you talk about the story from all sides and you should have the power or the confidence to be curious enough to say, well, this is what's going on. But this is how one side sees it, and this is how the other side sees it. Yeah. But the danger is if you become a social activist and blend that in, the danger is that um, you are not able to see the problem from all sides, um, and then you are uh, putting forward opinion. Yeah. Now, if that's what you're doing, then that's great. Uh, but you have to be very clear that you are there to cope the facts with opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I think news has become opinion based and why probably to sell. 100%, definitely. And it's involved with money. And I think that's when we at the receiving end of that, it gets confusing. 
because you can watch the news and it depends which channel you're on. You're going to get two totally, it's like split screen America. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the story is the story. The people are on the streets and the people are hurting and they are angry. Yeah. And it's amazing to me how the news institutions around the world, particularly in America, and the establishment in terms of the power system are always taken by surprise. Mm. When I first wanted to cover immigration in America as an immigrant myself, this was uh, uh, during a time, during Obama's term, in the middle of Obama's term, and no one wanted to cover it. I went to the editors of all the magazines I worked for, the best magazines in the world. Yep. And I said, I think there's a big story here about families being torn apart in America because of our flawed immigration policy. And they said, oh, that's not news. Uh, we don't really want to cover that. It's not on the desk of all the congressmen and senators on Capitol Hill. It's not on the desk of the president. We don't think that's a big news story right now. So we're, we're not really interested in covering it. Yeah. But it may not have been a big news story for them because they were looking at what's being done, which was essentially nothing. But if you're a family being ripped apart on the front line of the immigration story, you know, daddy gets put in an immigration, uh, gets put in a deportation center. Uh, he's the main breadwinner. Mommy and the kids uh, are now sent into abject poverty because they have no income and they've lost the father figure of the family. Or the kids get separated from both parents. Kids get separated from both parents and they're completely isolated in, a, in an alien environment, terrified, their health, mental health, physical health. Um, this is a big story. So eventually I raised my own, that's why I set up the People's Portfolio because I started to feel really constrained by a power system that didn't really want to talk about what's really going on. So I covered it myself. I raised my own money. I set up my own NGO. Um, and uh, I collaborated with other NGOs. In that case, it was Human Rights Watch, who have incredible data. And it's my job to humanize the data so we see ourselves in that story. Yeah. And um, it still took me a long time to persuade the media outlets to finally take the story. And if I'm going to be honest, without mentioning any names, it took me a year once wow. I'd shot it. And I thought I had this idea. I'm going to offer it to these guys for free. And it cost a fortune to spend six months on the road with my whole team. I'm not a guy with a little camera case. There's no. a lot of us. Yep. And we build studios across America. We set up in the desert. We go to morgues. We go to community centers. We went over the border to Mexico, Tijuana. Um, and uh, that cost a fortune. And then the post-production afterwards cost a fortune, but we did it. And I offered it for free as long as they run it big. And it still took me a year to persuade them to that, run it. I, mean, that's then, a, that's I, was right. I was right because it becomes the biggest story in the world at the time, at that time. And it, it unfortunately, because there was a vacuum about that story, it allowed everyone to get in and manipulate the story and turn it into a political football, which is yeah. exactly what happened. And by then, you could say it was too late. Yeah. No, it, if it, only I'd had a bit more push behind me, I think I could have done more than I did. But it, we did start the debate about immigration, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. 
And, you know, like, another thing I was kind of interested about, obviously, you photograph so many different, uh, like, politicians, world leaders, different people. Um, you're not going to, I would imagine, you're, you're not going to believe in everything that these people represent all the time. People have different opinions politically, whatever. Uh, how, do, how do you approach these shoots? Like, have you ever not wanted to photograph someone because you didn't believe in what they're about? Because you, you photograph some pretty... Uh, tough subjects like Vladimir Putin, Gaddafi, who there's no way about it. Like Gaddafi's not a good guy. Like he has not been good for humanity. Like how do you approach those shoots? What's kind of the inner dialogue with you? Uh, like why should we shine a spotlight on some of these guys? You know, I referred to it earlier. It's, it's, it's uh, trying. I'm not sure I'm successful, but trying to cure society's amnesia. Yeah. You know, I think it's and this is a, a debate that's happening right now. You know, do we wipe out the statues that represent something that's bad in society mm -hmm. or do we keep them? Uh, it's a very complicated debate and and uh, it's ongoing um, in terms of photography. Um, you know, I feel it's important that we document the times and yeah. I think it's important that we hold a banner up, up to society or even a mirror up to, to society and say you know this happened and uh, it's either a really good thing or a really bad thing sometimes to show the really bad things are even more important yeah. to make sure that they are never repeated again yeah and a visual uh, human icon can be a very powerful weapon to make sure that this doesn't happen again. For instance, I photographed uh, Harvey Weinstein and I photographed him a few times. And it was a time when he was seen, my pictures became sort of the banner for bad boy Hollywood swagger at that time. Yeah. Now the same pictures uh, mean something completely different. They mean they represent a monster an absolute monster who abused his power and privilege and position of influence in the media. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think those pictures should be taken away. I think the narrative has completely changed in those pictures. I'm not commenting on what's happening with the statues. Um, that's different in many ways, but in terms of my photography, I feel it's important that we remember that Harvey Weinstein was here and the damage that he did. Yeah. So make sure that never happens again. It's the same with Gaddafi. Uh, same with uh, so many of these figures I've photographed. Now, just because I'm photographing someone does not mean I agree with them. And it certainly doesn't mean I'm glorifying them. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm documenting them. And it's not for me to say whether they're a, a good person or a bad person. It's their legacy that informs the picture. Yeah. I'm not that powerful to be able to make that kind of comment. But if I try to be as honest and authentic as I can, I will give society a banner of existence. And that person uh, will, um, will make us look back at the times we're living in and say, all right, those were the good ones and those were the bad ones. Yeah. The good ones we can learn from and we can be inspired by. The people like Dr. McQuaige or the you know, so many human rights heroes that I photographed and civil rights heroes, people like Muhammad Ali, we can learn how to be courageous from looking at those people. Yeah. But then the people who have abused power, 
I think that's also really, really important. No, I, th- I think so too, because it's like, like it or not, you know, there, there's bad things in this world and you can't just uh, brush it off. Like you said, you just got to, you got to learn from it and see what these people do. And it is important to document it. And, you know, you there's, sorry to interrupt, but, you know, just to show that I'm not naive about this, um, you know, uh, a friend of mine was a celebrated uh, photographer, uh, photojournalist, war photographer. And we met at World Press Photo when I uh, won an award for the Putin picture I did. And uh, we became friends and we make use of joke that uh, he would photograph the front line at that time, which I didn't really used to do that, those kind of pictures then. Uh, And I would photograph the people who caused the damage that he would have to face. And um, it was a joke we had, you know, I was doing, I was doing these guys, he was doing those guys and somehow together we, we covered the story. Um, So when I did Gaddafi, uh, after I'd photographed Gaddafi, I was doing some tests of color tests in my studio with my team. And we were printing a giant, giant print of Gaddafi's face. I mean, his eyes were about this big on the print. And as that print's coming out of the printer, um, and it takes ages for a print of that size, so it's a whole process. And we'd work really hard on my team, just making sure the eyes were the right tone. I got a phone call, it was my birthday, and uh, they told me my friend had just been killed in Libya. And it was Gaddafi's forces had specifically targeted my friend because he was trying to tell the truth. And there was Gaddafi's face staring me staring at me coming out of my printer uh, and that, that when people might think I'm naive about what I do you know I'm reminded of those moments um, so uh, you know I've, I've seen it all and, and I look at the times we're in right now uh, I know how resilient people can be mm. because they've shown me and even though we're all frightened and even though we're all vulnerable and we are all frightened and many of us have lost our jobs and many of us are facing huge problems in the future we will know it this economy is taking a dive and then many of us may have lost loved ones that we can't even grieve for properly or many of us may be not well ourselves um i know that there's this extraordinary thing called resilience and I believe in the human condition and I, and I only because I've seen it and I've seen people in the world's darkest places show the truest of hearts. Mm. So I am an optimist and that's not a naive optimist. I've seen it all and I'm still an optimist. Maybe I'm even more optimistic now because I've I, I like it, Platon. I like the energy, man. I'm feeling it over here. And I'm telling you, we'll be all right. It's not going to be easy. And there, there is terrible we're facing a battle ahead of us. Yeah. But I know cause I've seen it. Yeah. That people are so strong. And I think before many of us were totally distracted by selfies, by social media, by our lattes with almond milk, by our, you know, all the, this lifestyle of privilege that we were living and this distraction with, uh, with technology, and the fast pace of life, we never even had a chance to pause and get reflection. Yeah. This whole thing, along with all the 
crisis that it's created and the hardship, it's forced us all to take a long pause in life. We have no choice. It's upon us. Yeah. So what do we do when we reflect? We look back at what we did wrong and what we did right. We look at the present to see where we are and how we're conducting ourselves right now, because that matters how we behave towards each other. And when this thing eventually passes, and it will, how we conducted ourselves now will matter in the future. Definitely. I promise you that. The yeah. people that you were kind to and compassionate towards uh, at this time, uh, they are going to really appreciate that in the future. Yep. So uh, in times of confusion, we must not lose our capacity to dare to be kind to one another. Definitely. And, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are like younger photographers. People are aspiring to do stuff that you've accomplished. And the thing I'm always kind of curious about is like someone like you that has, has accomplished a lot. Like when you were first starting out, did you kind of, did you always just have that confidence in yourself that you would succeed? Did you ever doubt yourself in this business? Uh, what, what do you kind of look back on when you're first starting out? Cause like, I think a lot of, a lot of people look at you like you, you're shooting the Time Magazine cover, shooting all these people, and you seem like in another stratosphere. Like, did you kind of have those feelings when you were kind of a young photographer yourself, like looking at the people that you kind of idolize, you think? You know, uh, I once photographed Annie Leibovitz. Yep. And uh, when I started, I hated everything that she represented because I was poor. I never met a celebrity. In London, there was a recession when I started, yep. and I was not even an underdog. I was just a forgotten generation. And I looked at her work celebrating the celebrated, the rich, the famous. It just seems untouchable to me. And it didn't even resonate with me, the value system. I didn't see truth in what she was doing. But as I started to work in my career, I started to think about what Annie did in a totally different way. I, I, I started to really respect what she's achieved as a professional and as a woman in this environment yeah. to, to have achieved the status of becoming a household name like, uh, like Ford or McDonald's or Coca-Cola is Annie Leibovitz. Yeah. So I started to change even though uh, in terms of our style was different and in many cases the kind of messaging was different. I, I grew to have great respect for her because I realized how hard it is to maintain a career that lasts a long time. And I got to photograph her one, one time and she was ironically very nervous. She was like fidgety. She was anxious. Uh, and she was very, very humble. And I said to her, Annie, what's it like to be number one? And this is after Richard Avedon had passed away. So yeah. she was now number one, I thought. Yeah. Penn had gone. Penn, Avedon, Helmut Newton, Annie. That was it. And I said, what's it like to be number one? And she looked at me and she burst out laughing. And she said, you've got to be kidding me. And, um, you know, it's, it's when you're in a position that people look to, it's what I said earlier about projecting something I face failure every day. Yeah. I fail more than most people even try. I'm not better than anyone else. I'm certainly not a better photographer than anyone else. Um, 
but I try really hard. And it's my optimism that actually keeps me going. I remember when I was a kid, uh, when I first moved from the Greek islands to England, in those days, I was not just a foreigner in England, I was a bloody foreigner, right? It was a racist society in the early 1970s. And uh, I really struggled. I had a Greek accent, I had olive skin, um, and I was different. And I culturally, I just didn't fit in. The Greek people are Mediterranean. They love children everywhere you go. They pinch your cheeks in the street, you know, and they think you're cute. In England, it was like, oh, kids, get them away, you know. Now, my mum's English. I was born in England, uh, so I, I am half English. I'm half Greek. Now I'm an American. So it's all a mix. Mm. But I remember getting in trouble at school because I was struggling to fit in. And they said, right, you have to go to the head teacher and stand outside the head teacher, get out of the class, go and stand in the corridor outside the head teacher's office, and you wait till you're called. So all the other classes were still going on and I was pulled out of the class and I was waiting in this lonely corridor uh, and I wasn't in class and I wasn't in the head teacher's office yet. I was in this no man's land where I'm waiting for something to happen. And I suddenly thought, this is kind of cool. <laughs> There's no rules to be in this corridor of power. Yeah. I'm not in a classroom. So I'm not doing the lessons that all my friends are doing and I'm not yet in deep shit with the teacher, the head teacher. So I'm in this strange place where I'm just me and it's a, there's not a lot of room to navigate, but I thought I kind of like this feeling hmm. and I've always been in that place when I'm in the white house, you know, it feels weird to me to think, all right, well, this is the president, so I need to get down on my hands and knees and, as, as if I'm some kind of subhuman person and they're superhuman. Mm. It is a president. That's a big deal. No doubt. Same with a prime minister. Same with any business leader. But they're still a human being. Yep. And I don't buy it that I'm less and they're more. I think it's about what we did. It's not a question of whether you're the president. It's whether you were a good president that's much more interesting to me. Mm. So it allows me to say, look, I know you're powerful and I'm not, but your power projection doesn't work on me. So let's just be human with each other. And I'm not going to be disrespectful, but I am going to be honest, just as I was in the corridor waiting to go in and meet the head teacher. And, and so I think we all have to be honest. And a message to all younger generation of photographers, um, we need you. Mm. We need you. The business needs you. The business needs you even more than you need it. And I yep. bet you never thought about it like that. Yeah, the definitely. business needs great storytellers now more than ever. Because if we had great storytellers en masse, we wouldn't be in this situation of tribalism right now because we would all understand each other's lives better. But because we, we, we screwed it up, the business needs a shot in the arm of great new talent. And if anyone's listening today, don't think for a moment that you are not useful. You're perhaps more useful to society now than you ever would have been in history. So I say, load up your bloody camera, hit the streets and do what you were born to do.
because your messaging is needed. But do it in a way, think about the responsibility that you carry. And to be a photographer, whether you're a portrait photographer or a document, whatever the label you want to put on it, throw the labels away for a minute and just think about being useful and how you can serve. And with a photographer, you can do a lot because you're the ones, we are the ones that help build bridges in society. Yeah, I think it's like, I think it took me a long time to learn this. It's like it, being a young photographer now, it's so easy to compare yourself with social media and all these things. You're always looking like, what's this person doing? What's this person doing? But it's like, like you said, he's got to kind of got to block out the noise and just focus on your work. What, what are you trying to accomplish? And just kind of do the work day by day, brick by brick. And don't like worry about comparing yourself to what everyone else is doing. I've done all that, man. So yeah. I'd be lying if I said I woke up and I thought I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to have a seat at the table of power yeah. and, and I'm going to be one of the numbers. There's like top five, whatever it is. I, I did all that. I wanted that. And I compared myself to every photographer around when I first started. And I promise you that whenever I compared myself to anyone, my personal um, anxiety went up through the roof Mm -hmm. and my self-confidence went down. And whenever I've been at my best is when I, I just mustered enough confidence to say, you know what, I'm me. Now, I'm not as good as so-and-so, and I'm not as powerful as so-and-so, I'm not as talented as so-and-so, but if I focus on being me, there's only one me. That's the big advantage I have. So if I try to copy someone else, I'm going to be, at best, a second-rate version of them. But if I just focus on being me and be authentic, then I have a chance to be completely unique because there's only one me, for better or worse. So um, that's what I did. And the more me I became, the more happy I became, and the better my work became. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's really important as a message to everyone who's listening today that, uh, you know, be you. You is great. And the great thing about you is that you're in control of you. Yeah. And the path that Avedon took, or Annie took, or Penn took, or Helmut Newton took, or even the path that I took, is irrelevant yeah because by the time you get going that path has been burnt it yeah. doesn't exist anymore so part of being uh, a great person a great photographer a great talent is the fact that not only did you do good work but you navigated your own path and that's really important so use your smarts yeah. and, and mix it up with a bit of resilience yeah. and a bit of talent Boom, you'll be fine. Yep. Well, I know we got to wrap up here. Uh, so I can go a bit more if you want. All right. Yeah, definitely. Because I think your manager said 245, but I'm, I got some more questions. Do you still want to keep going? Let's do a bit more. All right. Cool. All right. Platon, I like it. Platon, we're going. We're going to keep going here. Uh, you know, one thing when I look at a Platon photo, I think a lot of people, you see it. It's on Time Magazine. You know, it's a Platon photo. And you know, I think the hardest thing a lot of times photographers struggle with is like finding their voice as a photographer. Yeah. Who am I? Like, did it kind of take you a long time to find your voice as a photographer? And like, is it still something you're cracking at every year? Or how do you kind of view this, the style and aesthetic and your approach to what you do? Well, it's interesting. It's a good question for all emerging photographers. Um, I mean, you could make a case that now 
there are more photographers than any time in history because everyone's got a phone. Yeah. I mean, when Aung San Suu Kyi was released from house arrest, I smuggled myself into Burma and I negotiated a sitting with her uh, the day she was released or the day after she was released. And I was, me and my brave assistant were chased by secret police in a car chase. It, went, it was an absolute living nightmare. It's like the born supremacy, only I'm not Jason Bourne and I'm not cool. Uh, but I remember she said to me, I, I said to her, what was it like stepping to freedom um, after years and years of house arrest that suddenly you could walk across the threshold and, and be free? And she said, when, I, when the door opened and I stepped out, I was faced by a giant crowd of people and I hadn't seen people in years on this scale. Yeah. Suddenly I could interact with them. But she said there was something very strange. And I said, what is that? And she said, well, they're all waving their phones at me. Why were they doing that? And I said, they weren't waving their phones to you. They were taking your picture. And she said, wow, they have cameras in phones now. What will they think of next? Yeah. You know, and... Um, I'm not using her as an ideal situation because actually, you know, she became the face of disappointment in the end. And she's heavily criticized now that she's de facto leader of her country. Yeah. But as an example to show uh, everyone has a phone, everyone has a camera, everyone's taking pictures. So how do you find your voice now that there's a sea of white noise? It's either harder or it's easier. You have to be honest. And, you know, people look at my work and they'll, they'll see, well, what are the elements? And people have said, well, it's your white background. It's one of them. Well, the white background is, is uh, because I was brought up in a Greek village and all the white houses are white backgrounds. And I used to draw all the elderly people in my village before I was a photographer. So I would sit them in front of a white background uh, the edge of their house and I would do a little portrait in my sketchbook. So it actually looks just like my photographs now when I was about 13, 14 years old drawing the blue halo thing. Yeah. Well, that's a combination of things. Um, firstly, a lot of Greek icons in church. I'm not religious myself, but I grew up respecting people's views and every 10 buildings in my village there was a church so it was all around me and I would see these icons everywhere where there was this aura of light around someone so my first visual um, sense of portraiture was often that this is a this is a still image of somebody with an aura of light and um, naturally that must have got somehow into my system and when I'm photographing people either at the top of power or people who are showing great uh, uh, strength, uh, it's their aura of their personality that I'm taken, taken back by. And with Putin, I mean, that's a different kind of aura, but it's an aura. Yeah. You know, and it's there. But also the blue um, comes from uh, Van Gogh mm. and early Picasso. Okay. Because Van Gogh would always use blue. If you think of that classic self-portrait he did with the swirly background, uh, in the, in, it's a blue swirly back background. And he, he would mix Van Dyke brown with cobalt blue a lot to create this palette. 
And when I went to art school, before I was given a camera, uh, I was obsessed with Van Gogh and with Picasso. And I, I learned so much from both of them. Uh, the blue is something that resonated with me. And then you'll see also structurally from their uh, compositions that perspective was often drawn out. Yeah. Especially with Van Gogh. You know, some of his portraits, the hands are a little bit bigger. You know, the flowers, everything is a little bit enhanced. And so particularly with his black and white pen and ink drawings, there was this lovely chiseled quality that you could almost touch yeah. what, he, what he's describing to you. You can feel the surface of it. So all this stuff, you know, studying Henry Moore, um, studying architecture, Le Corbusier, Frank Lloyd Wright, Marcel Breuer, all these people taught me about space, structure, form. So by the time I start getting into photography, you know, I start thinking about the architecture of the body. You know, you're either going in really close and creating a feeling of what it's like to be an inch and a half away from Putin's nose. So you can feel his breath on your hand as you focus the lens yeah. or you're going further away and you're dealing with the architecture of his body and how does he express power with his physical presence where he sits back in the chair and his hands are resting on the arms and he's nonchalant with his head and he's almost looking down at you and he's, he's performing power. Now that's, mm -hmm physical thing so i'm just trying to describe to you the viewers what it's like to be in front of it and when you when you go into these shoots like you look at these guys posing when you look at your photos they might be posing with their hands on their face or like these different poses are you going in with like a plan like i'm going to try this this and this or do you kind of just let the subject kind of uh sit down, let them kind of do their thing and you kind of this kind of navigate through each shoot or how do you kind of approach it, I guess? You know, uh, John Lennon always said, what's the gimmick? Yeah. And, and uh, I wish I had a gimmick. My life would have been so much easier if I had a trick. <laughs> and the, the honest truth is I've got no tricks. Yeah. White background. There's nothing there, man. There's not even a chair most of the time. Putin's armchair was was because I wasn't allowed an assistant, so I couldn't carry my now famous little apple box in yeah. um, at that moment. Later on, I did, and he sat on it. But at that moment, I just had to grab something that was around me, and it was his office chair uh, where the nuclear button is on his desk. So I just said, well, let's just sit you down in that, mate. <laughs> and we sat him down, and, and it took on this throne-like kind of arrogance, and it was perfect. But um, I... You know, you don't, you shouldn't have an idea mm -hmm. in my book. Yeah. I'm a modernist. Reduce it to the truth. Um, I'm not, I'm not someone who says more is more. Less is more for me. That's how my dad brought me up. He was an architect. That's how I was trained. Be honest with the materials. If you're putting up a building, if it's concrete, show it's concrete. If it's, if, you know, if it's made of brick, show it's made of brick. Yeah. If the person is this, show them this. Don't cover it up with with facade or glamour. Take it down. Yeah. Show the truth. So how can you go in with a gimmick if you've got that mindset? But it's I can tell you it's absolutely terrifying every time. Yeah. Every time. Because you've got nothing to hide behind. You're just go you so you have to train yourself to be raw 
and highly observant. Yeah, and, I, I watched your yeah. Netflix. I watched your Netflix documentary last night, which was really interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll link it in the description. People can definitely go check it out. Um, you were you were photographing Colin Powell, and the thing that I really took away from it is your. He comes to your studio, and you really spent a lot of time like talking to him before you even picked up the camera. Obviously, you probably can't do that with every shoot because sometimes you get two seconds, sometimes you get an hour. Um, how do you kind of how do you kind of approach this kind of communicating with people like you know Colin Powell? You could tell he 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 had respect for your work. Like he, I, the thing I took away from it, he had looked at your website the night before the shoot, which I I thought that was this like mad respect. A lot of people they don't they don't care about the photographer. You're just another photographer most of the time. So it's like, how do you deal with those people that that are tough that don't want to talk to you? To them, it's like going to the dentist. But yeah, but it's not about you as a photographer. Yeah. You know, and that, that, so when you realize how insignificant you are, you're free, you're liberated. Yep. You know, and actually when I first started, particularly in America, when I was working with John Kennedy Jr., we had a pact. And he said to me, I will send you out on the road uh, and I will get you access to the most powerful people in America. But he said, your job, your side of the deal is that you are true and authentic with people and you never allow their authority to affect uh, or intimidate your creativity. You have to show me what it's really like to meet the person, not the brand. Yep. And he said, the day you come to me with a picture that is more about brand than person, he said, our deal is over. You're going back to London. Yeah. So um, that it, it's not that it was a change for me. It was someone I respected and someone who gave me a break, who believed in me, uh, who actually encouraged me to be more me than even I, was, uh, I had the capacity to do. So I think that's really important. And I realize that when I'm with all these people, I'm not important. Mm. I would have liked to have been important then. <laughs> yeah. I would have loved, you know, the idea of someone saying, come here, young man, it's such a thrill to be photographed by you. In those days, no one knew who I was. I didn't have a track record. Yeah. And I was always, you know, so lucky to just be in the room. And of course, the challenges of that are obvious but there's great advantages of being in that position mm -hmm. because there's no expectations. Yep. And so you're actually, you might only have this much room to maneuver in maybe with time or the setup or cause you're not, you know, a big shot. You just have camera, one light, whatever you can carry, no backup equipment cause you can't carry it in. You can't afford an assistant. You're just in there on your own. But within all those restrictions, you are free. Yeah. No one knows what you're going to do. So now, yeah, they all come to the studio and they all, they know my work. Right. Yeah. And actually they come to the studio wanting to be photographed now, not because they like my pictures. Cause I think they're a bit scared of my pictures, <laughs> but they now know that I photographed so many other powerful people, uh, that it's somehow now they are in the club. Yeah. Um, but not always, you know, certainly all the human rights heroes I photographed, really, then they are not concerned with that. Yeah. They are concerned with driving change. And if I can give them a platform that's enhanced in any way 
and help them by providing an icon for what they believe in mm -hmm. uh, to inspire other leaders, then they're all in. Yeah. So it, it depends on, you know, what your motivation is. You know, now I have people coming to powerful people who have looked at my website or know my work like, like Colin Powell. Um, now my mindset is not really enjoying that moment. My, now my mindset is, okay, if I've been fortunate enough to get this little bit of influence in society, uh, it's a little winning streak is all it is. Um, if I have that, then I have to use that to uh, and help bring that to people that need it. So when I photograph an emerging leader, uh, that's much more interesting because... I'm the guy that photographed Putin. So when I photograph Pussy Riot, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right? And, and if I'm the guy that photographed Obama, when I work with Edward Snowden, mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. And when James Comey comes to my studio, uh, it's kind of interesting because I'm also, I'm, I'm friends with Edward Snowden. Like, yeah. how does that work? So I, I like that. You know, and, and at the end of the day, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not there to take sides. I'm just there to drive positive change. And if it, how can that be bad? So if someone's against that, then they're a monster. Definitely. But if they're not against that, then let's have an honest conversation. I respect it. It's, uh, it's very powerful. And uh, I guess to wrap up, Platon, um, what's next for you, man? Like what's, what's kind of... Like I said, there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, are you like inspired? Is there anything you're hoping to work on right now? Or like what's kind of your mindset going forward with your art or all your other endeavors, I guess? Well, um, I'm getting really interested in film. video, okay. And uh, I always promised myself I wouldn't. You know, I, why, I do you say, why do you say that? <laughs> because some of those photographers are terrible at it. You know, like filmmakers, it's its own special thing. Yeah. And um, most photographers think they can have a go and just do it. And mm -hmm. it's the same with filmmakers doing photography. It's yep. the same with fashion stylists thinking that they can become photographers. Some become great photographers. Uh, but, you know, you don't just switch over because you can. You yep. can do that, but it doesn't mean it's a good picture. Yeah. Right? And uh, if I'm established as a photographer, uh, it doesn't mean I can just switch sides and become a filmmaker and be good at it because I was good at photography. Yeah. Uh, I have to earn it all over again. 100. So I'm really excited by earning it all over again. And uh, I'm learning how to become a filmmaker and I'm doing documentaries now. So my first film was um, called My Body is Not a Weapon and it was all based in the Congo dealing with sexual violence and that's and I worked with Dr. McQuaige and all these amazing brave compassionate women who are survivors of sexual violence who refuse to be victims even though they have been victimized and they uh, they worked very closely with me and uh, it wasn't a white male um, sort of viewpoint of of this difficult subject matter it was a complete collaboration and I was taught and guided by the people who are directly affected by this. And I just offered up my platform for them to use to reach us all. Yeah. So that's how I approach filmmaking, 
to do the kind of pictures I do, you've got to get close to someone. And so if you're close, then there's this magical electricity. And uh, often I thought, I used to think that the photograph is enough of evidence of that. But now I'm thinking I can go a lot further because people say things to me during that process that are really powerful and revealing about their, their character or their humanity. And I'm not out to get anyone. I'm really it's encouraging them to collaborate with me. And so um, now I think the photograph isn't enough. It's just part of the process. And the most important thing is not photograph or the film. It's the message you get through it. Yeah. And if I can expand my capacity to reach you and move you to think differently about something, then I'll do whatever it takes. And right now I'm getting really interested in the process of film. So I'm making two new films at the moment. Awesome. And uh, one is about the times we're living in, which is chaos. Yeah. And the other one is about uh, poverty in America. Awesome. Well, uh, look forward to seeing all that stuff. And Platon, like I said, been following your work for years. It was a real pleasure getting the chance to talk to you. Um, so I can't thank you enough. Look, it's, a, it's, it's, it's always a privilege to talk to someone like you because, you know, you are just trying to build bridges. That's how I see it. Yep. And uh, you're doing what I do. You know, you're trying to get people to open up and be honest about their journey. And this is this must not be a sort of uh, putting me on any kind of pedestal because that's everything I actually stand against. Mm. So what we hope to do today is to inspire the next generation of photographers who are watching this. And Definitely. when I've had moments in my career where I've been lost and I've been struggling, we've all had those. Um, sometimes you just you you find yourself watching someone else listening to someone else, how they struggled. And if you see yourself in their struggle, then that opens up a world of possibilities. And you think if they did it, then surely I can do it. 100. You know, I once asked Kobe Bryant uh, when we worked together, where did you get your confidence from? You know, I said, how, I look at you and you just seem invincible in your self-confidence. And he said, when he was a young kid, you know, it wasn't a dead cert that he was going to become this epic legend. So he said, um, he'd look in the mirror at himself and he would say, somebody's got to win. It might as well be me. Definitely. And I, when, he heard, when I heard that, I thought, it's amazing. Yeah. So I put it back now to all the people who are watching this. Someone's got to become useful in society. Someone has got to drive positive change with the skills they have. Someone has to be able to deploy their talent and inspire something great in our society. Yeah. It might as well be you. Let's, let's get it, Platon. Let's get it. Pound it out right there, man. Pound it out. Let's get it. That's, that's the end of it. That's a very platonic idea, isn't it? <laughs> All right, Platon, thanks so much. I'll let you get back to your day. And I apologize to your studio manager for going over. So thank Don't you. Sorry, so she's doing a great job too. Cheers, right. man. Later. Bye. Bye. So there you have it. That was the Platon interview. I just want to thank Platon so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. 
a real pleasure talking to him about everything he's kind of accomplished within his career. Like I said, I've been following his work for years, so a real pleasure getting a chance to speak with him. Uh, definitely go check out Platon's website at platonphoto.com. Lots of amazing work and projects and really amazing stuff he's uh, working on and everything he's doing with the, the people's portfolio. Uh, definitely go check that out. And as always, I'll be having weekly podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, as well as on YouTube now, the Photo Banter page. Uh, you can you can peep this interview on YouTube, the video, and everything will be up there. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much for listening, and take care.